1: Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. We're back live and direct. We're doing well. Hope you're doing the same. Let's give a shout out to Mr. Max Williams. First of his name. <laughs> He's kissing the sky there. Love it. Love the energy. They call me Ben. Uh, Noel, you're in, you're in the office today. I always, I always love when any of us gets a chance to record there.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm in the sort of like the, the tiny little sweatbox uh, studio at the office, which um, we're moving offices. Right. I think we may have mentioned before. So it's a little sad and decrepit now, but it is kind cool. I, I don't know that the air conditioning's on. i have just now got the sudden sense of suffocation. I, I think it's I will not.
1: power through. All right, I will power through. Well, thank you for your service. I of I course. think that this is yeah. I think you're right because I've been I've been hanging out at the office a lot for various endeavors most of which aren't sketchy and yeah i think the ac is shut down somebody queue up boys to men hard to say goodbye to yesterday <laughs> oh, no, i know no. but we're going to we're going to a better place and we're actually going to a better place what are you place. saying it's not like are we, are we doing like a Jim like jones kind of situation not like when no. your parents okay. told oh, okay, you about okay, your dog okay. no we're actually Go going to a new office
0: <laughs> wouldn't that be messed up if we like just committed like company wide Simultaneous suicide. Uh, that, Why did I go dark like that?
1: That's so, I, what's wrong with me Nothing. It's, it's, nothing. it's the heat. No. It's the heat.
0: Excuse me. It's going to my brain.
1: Oh, no, you know, everybody collectively is is in a weird place. I think if someone tried that at our office, it would be grounds for a revolution.
0: I agree. We are all kind of collectively technically committing long-term suicide at the same time. That's just called living.
1: Yeah, life is a terminal condition uh, for now, but Indeed. Yeah, here's, here's hoping medical science gives us a new answer to that. That's also another thread with today's episode. Today's episode is. is about a physician, and it is about a revolution, a little thing we call the American Revolution here in the United States. It's probably called like the peasant uprising or something in the U.K.,
0: Oh, it's so diminutive, but whatever, you know, they're they're a bunch of posh uh, folks over there. They have their own perspective. You know, what do we always say? One side's freedom fighters, the other side's terrorists. Well, in this situation, the Americans were terrorists, you know, through and through. One of these terrorists, uh, a guy named Joseph Warren, was a very respected doctor of the time. This was in the 1760s uh, to the 1770s when he was acted not only as an admired and respected physician, but also as what his side would have called a patriot. He was a central figure in the American Revolution, and the title of this episode is Dr. Joseph Warren, forgotten hero of the American Revolution, and I would tend to agree. I'd never really heard of the man. There's a a lot of things that he was instrumental in that we absolutely all would have heard of. And we're going to get into that shortly. But the man himself was totally lost, at least to my experience of history. I don't know about you guys, but mm-hmm. um, was not like a big red letter item, you know, in history class for me.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's weird, too, because, you know, here in the States, when schoolchildren are taught about the American Revolution, you get the same big names pretty constantly, right? George Washington, other founding fathers, you know, uh, of course, Paul Revere, things like that. If you live in a part of the country where, you know, one of the famous people from your town was involved in the revolution, you might hear about that. But chances are, if you're an average school kid who didn't live in the area of Roxbury, Massachusetts, you may not have heard of Joseph Warren. Born June 11th, 1741. He's the eldest of four kids. He is actually Joseph Warren II. His father, uh, also Joseph Warren, was a farmer. And from these, you know, not super uh, patrician means, Joseph Warren, the younger, managed to make a, a big splash in the world of academia. He went to Harvard at the age of 14. He did, and this is just—I just, I, I
0: shouldn't laugh. This is obviously very sad to lose your father, but his father was a farmer who died after falling out of an apple tree. Mm-hmm. Um, that that sounds like a setup for a joke, or maybe the
1: punchline. I
0: don't know. Apple trees were like, really you know, dangerous
1: back then. They were like— uh yeah. yeah.
0: Going around giving physicists brilliant ideas, Mm -hmm. you know, killing young patriots' fathers, you know. Uh, There's that whole expression, like, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Well, this dude fell out of the tree and died. And maybe that inspired uh, young Joseph to reach great heights. He studied Latin. He was a very intelligent kid from a very early age. uh, And then he went on to study to become a physician. He went on to marry a woman named Elizabeth Houghton, which is a wonderful last name. That sounds Dutch to me. On September 6th of 1764, and she brought quite a bit of money to the table, which I think in addition to obviously, you know, being a physician, was probably a pretty helpful in, in some of his future endeavors. You know, he's a good example of like someone who inherits some money and and does something positive with it, as opposed to just like, you know, settling back into the old hot tub.
1: Yeah, he married up for sure. And in the defense of apple trees, lest they be unfairly maligned in today's show, I'd like to say if we're in our Law of Order episode on the colonies, then I would say the true villain here is Gravity. Uh, Uh, It's true. (laughs)
0: Yeah. uh, uh, by the way, Ben, Law and Order uh, Revo- American Revolution Edition, I think, is a brilliant idea. Um, Thank you. And yeah. Can I just mock myself briefly for the first thing that came to mind for, like, a show of, of 1764 wealth was a hot tub? I just want to point that out in case anyone else is already thinking about it. What, they I had? A of it, I thought-
1: <laughs> they had hot. T- they might not have had jacuzzi jets, but they were <laughs> yeah. aware of the uh, restorative benefits of above room temperature water. I like the hot tub it's idea. Uh, so oh, I appreciate that, Ben. Hey, so we got each other's backs always. You're right. He married up. He was also from an old Massachusetts family. The Warrens have been kicking around in one generation or another for about a century and a half at the time the revolution occurred and they were kind of like they were almost a trope in terms of demographics at the time they were a middle class colonial family they farmed but they also had a voice in local politics the small town stuff and because of this joseph warren was always from you know day one of his life thinking of himself as a member of the colonies as an American rather than, you know, someone who owed their allegiance to the British crown. And we do want to, at this point, shout out, of course, our good friends at Smithsonian and our good friends at the National Library of Medicine. There's one uh, article called Dr. Joseph Warren, Leader in Medicine Politics Revolution by George C. Wildrick. I like that name, Mr. Wildrick or doctor. Anyhow, so what we're saying is, This guy always felt that he was patriotic, and we know that he put his money where his mouth or his philosophy were. We can see that while he was at Harvard, he graduated in 1759, the French and Indian War was afoot. And we know that when he was hanging in Harvard, a lot of the people he would meet later who were considered radicals were also Harvard alum. Some of them may have been his cohorts. We're talking all the hits. Sam Adams, you know, John Adams, John Hancock, all the hits, all the Johns. And Noel, when he, it's weird because when we're talking about doctors in these times, in this era, your path to becoming your own medical professional was a little different. He graduated, right, with a top-notch degree for his time. And he didn't necessarily have what we would call a modern residency or specialization today. He got an apprenticeship. I didn't know you could just do that. You just go to another doctor and you're like, I got the paper now. Teach me. Yeah, I, mean, I imagine there were, you
0: know, slightly fewer regulations and it was a bit more of a handshake kind of situation. Like, you, you know, somebody and you just walk up and they like the cut of your jib and they they check out your credentials and boom, you got yourself an apprenticeship as opposed to having to be placed or doing some sort of like, you know, rigorously um Oversighted kind of, uh, what do you call those, residencies, right? Things like that. It was a little bit more of a kind of seat of the pants kind of situation back in those days, don't you think?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%, things may have been much less formal. And part of that, you know, is, is a study of the evolution of medicine, both as an industry and as a series of sciences. Look, we're not dinging the guy for an apprenticeship. He was doing what was very normal, for a young doctor to do at the time. And because of his apprenticeship to this doctor, James Lloyd, he was able to exercise nepotism and social networks, which meant that he started working with the most prominent, important families in Boston. He was kind of like the doctor to the stars, except in revolutionary Boston instead of Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills also wasn't a thing.
0: Right. No, it wasn't <laughs> a thing. But there, you know, there, there, there were parts of Boston that you could probably uh, say were Beverly Hills adjacent, like Cambridge and the the, the the, gentry associated with academia and all of that good stuff. But Warren, you know, he he was more than that. You know, he he, he saw a, a greater purpose in what his affluence provided he saw that he wanted to carry out a very important civic duty with his work and you know starting public clinics or at least working within public clinics and um you know uh, inoculating people against smallpox and just basically helping the people of Boston that could not help themselves uh, and that did not have access to the 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 more you know bespoke kind of uh, medical help that there was uh, at the time so he was practicing medicine when he met some of these kind of landed gentry of uh, the Boston aristocracy, you could call them, as well as some of these more radical kind of underground colonial leaders who would ultimately help him kind of blaze a trail of politics, of of revolution, of just really, really, really important work that would lead to the uh, establishment of the United States, essentially, even though he maybe didn't get the credit that he was due. We're going to get into how important he was and or could have been. There's a part of this episode that honestly kind of becomes almost a fun alternative history, Mm -hmm. kind of like thought experiment. And I'm looking forward to that part. But for now, he stayed living in Boston during a massive smallpox epidemic that took place in 1763. He took care of the sick. He opened a clinic that specifically gave out free inoculations at the Castle William in Boston Harbor. And it was such a smashing success that he was able to significantly reduce the smallpox deaths that would have happened otherwise. And he kind of single-handedly led the charge in this department. His reputation became legendary. Like, this is a good man. This is a man who has empathy, who knows how to help people who are needy and 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 knows how to organize. And he made no differentiation between the wealthy and the poor. And that was something that was very, very attractive in terms of like, you know, a political leader or in terms of someone who there are greater things in store for.
1: Yeah, exactly. And he also had the bedside manner that you want in a doctor. So he's a little bit egalitarian for the time, as you said. He also impressed pretty much everybody in charge in Boston because he was funny. He was witty, and he was just a really nice guy. We know that everybody thought this because even people who disagreed with him on fundamental political platforms would say stuff like, now, Dr. Warren and I, we don't always see eye to eye, but he's wicked kind. The guy is, he's he's wicked smart, and uh, you could have a beer with him is what I'm saying, because of the access his profession got, he became a known popular figure throughout all of old Boston town. By the way, he's in his 20s at this point. Remember, he went to Harvard at 14. Yes, he's the youngest doctor in Boston at 22. And he is treating a lot of people who go on to be founding fathers and two people who go on to be president, John Adams and John Quincy Adams. He also, we're talking about political disagreements, he also hung out with, Loyalist and loyalists were the people in the colonies who supported the king, as everybody remembers from the play Hamilton. Or history, your choice. Uh and he Can that, I can I give but, a hot take real quick? Yeah, you don't I'm not like a, Hamilton, not a, big I know. Fan.
0: not a big fan. No, I just I don't get it. I, I I couldn't make it all the way through the the the, uh, the Disney Plus. Like It's beautifully shot and really well done. And I love musicals.
1: I love hip-hop. I just
0: It wasn't for me. I, I think why. for
1: a lot of people, I don't know about you, man, but one thing that happens to me is uh, too much hype will ruin totally. a thing for me because of my contrarian nature. So it could be <laughs> yeah, the best fair. thing ever. If people were like, hey, there's this new band out, and every time you listen to one of their songs, puppies get a new lease on life. And that if enough people told me how great it was, I'd still be, I'd still have a skeptical approach. I'd say that's okay, I guess. You know, I mean, i i
0: slept I slept on the Beatles for years because of the hype, and then I had to kind of come to it my own, in my own way, in my own time. And when I did, it kind of clicked for me. So maybe that'll happen for me with Hamilton too. But it wasn't that I even didn't like it. I just found myself not being compelled to finish watching it. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I actively disliked it. I just didn't like go back to the well. You know, so I was just like,
1: well, I guess it. it did Did't didn't grab me so anyway. it's better if you see it live too any any Probably stage so. player stage musical but yeah i've been I've been the same way about stuff, and uh you know what? I wonder how I would have behaved during the times of the American Revolution. I think it would depend on who hyped it too much if the loyalists were hyping Britain to me too much i would I would say I think it's overrated, you know hopefully that's what happened but here's what happened with Warren, very much not a loyalist, but he does have this air of civility. He treats the children of the royal governor. He even treats the wife of the governor. And there is right now some pretty, I won't say airtight, but pretty compelling evidence that Dr. Warren may have been spying on the British while he was uh, doing his medical duties. And there are even a few historians who got kind of TMZ with it. And they say the doctor may have been having an affair with the wife of the royal governor. Uh, And that through that affair, he may have had advance notice of British troop movements that were going to occur in Concord on April 18th, 1775. And this is where we get to his role in the revolution. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac, yeah, Camino, right? Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was, a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. And I said El Camino <laughs> and I meant Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running, but Totally, it, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, You know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now,
0: It wasn't until 1767 uh, with the passage of the Townsend Act that Warren really began in earnest to— can I, I'm, I'm going to say ra- be radicalized because I think that term is so misleading, don't you, Ben? Like, like the idea of like, oh, he's radicalized, that implies that like the idea that they are accepting or, or becoming, in, in, you know, um, inflamed by, you know, in a positive way is in some way radical. But I guess maybe the term radical maybe refers to against the status quo. It's not necessarily like a judgment Call, what What do you think, Ben, about that term radical?
1: So, yeah, radical can be a little bit tricky in these times because it's been used in different ways. But what I think we mean here by radical is we mean he was saying, all right, we don't need to make half measure legislation. We don't need to make policies that say, well, we'll pay a, a little less tax to Britain or well we'll we'll work on a plan to maybe talk about being a little more autonomous in 10 15 years that kind of stuff they were saying no totally. uh, let's get free us being white landowning citizens and the Townshend
0: Act, you know, it's it's a big lumped together kind of catch-all for a bunch of really pedantic and kind of mean-spirited flexes, legal flexes that the British imposed on the colonies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the most famous probably one was the tax on tea because what was to be America was a colony of England. So they, they had a lot of the same traditions and a lot of the same kind of, um, what do you call them, like uh, – customs, I guess, as the British. So tea was a big deal. So this tax on tea was a massive way of saying, well, we're your daddy and pay us tribute. And if you don't, then we're, we're going to come come for your for your tea time. Uh, and of course, that resulted in the Boston Tea Party. All this stuff was Boston-centric. Boston was like ground zero for all of these revolutionary kind of talks. But yeah, exactly. So he, this is, this is when he, okay, something must be done, as you would say, Ben. And he was going to Take the power that he had as a physician, as, I guess, an influencer, for lack of a better term, uh, of the time, and he was going to put that power that he had and that reputation that he had to really, really good use, and he did just that. He wrote a series of articles in the Boston Gazette under a pseudonym, A True Patriot, and they were critiques of the Townshend Act. And they were so inflammatory for the time that the, I believe the um, royal governor was so enraged um, and, you know, felt so attacked that he actually tried to sue the publishers of the Boston Gazette for libel. But a grand jury that was assembled, you know, uh, on the matter refused to bring any kind of and, you know, just yes, that, that's not I love what this it. <laughs> they were speaking truth to
1: power. Yeah, you know? it's like yeah. jury nullification. The modern day, the jury said, nah, we're not going to do it." I do want to add. This is funny too for me. When we think of radicalization, we think of almost guerilla uh, tactics and politics and stuff like sure. that. And then later, physical tactics of that sort. He also, Warren, I mean, uh, he also got kind of into the mixtape game, or its equivalent at the time. In 1774, he wrote a song called Free America. It was a poem set to a uh, British tune, The British Grenadiers. You can read the full text online. It's not quite like a Kanye West banger today, but uh, it definitely kept the governor mad. So picture the royal governor saying, I, this this guy called himself a true Patriot. He's in for it. We're not going to take this on the chin. And then Warren, maybe he's complaining to Warren about it while he's at an appointment with Warren and Warren's going, yeah, that guy sounds like a real pill. You know, people got to do their things. Also, I'm sleeping with your wife. Anyway, the, uh, these articles, <laughs> the, these articles are huge, right? Everybody kind of knows that it's, it's Warren and His friends, some of whom were Harvard alum as well, some of whom were his patients, his friends start kind of getting in a positive feedback loop of something must be done. And we're talking about people like Samuel Adams, his brother-in-law, James Otis, and he was down with Paul Revere because they had a Freemason connection. And this puts him right in the middle of the separatist movement. He's leading the charge on Boston Massacre responses too. You know, isn't it funny, Ben? I mean, I think we we, we know better from our various studies on
0: different podcasts, but specific, specifically stuff they don't want you to know, the idea of the Freemasons being some sort of you know, shadowy cabal of like, you know, world event steerers or controllers or whatever, you know, guiding the course of history from, you know, some sort of secret bunker. But I think what really it comes down to is it was a brotherhood of intelligent people. And a lot of times, you know, in times where being intelligent or forward thinking was not nearly the norm. So I think a lot of things spring forward from Mason Masonic connections because it was a place where these kinds of people could meet, you know, and like come up with ideas. Ideas together and yeah, some of them sure over time or maybe bad or or the idea of like you know the, the super wealthy or whatever. But things like this, like this, is literally what. Thinking groups of people should be doing is mm-hmm. like thinking about how, how can we rebel against the status quo that is literally trying to deprive us of like a, a meaningful, you know,
1: way of life. I think you'll be interested, fellow ridiculous historians, to check out our stuff they want you know episodes on that and our forthcoming book coming out in October. Pre order it now oh, yeah. so we don't get fired. Please do. <laughs> but, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, we, we make that case, uh, too. Just as you said, you know, uh, people in these Masonic movements were often. Forward-thinking, progressive, or even considered heretical in their time, and yes, maybe they were, maybe members of Masonic movements were participating in what could be called conspiracies, but it wasn't to like run the world or get adrenochrome from children. It was, it was more um, like freedom of religion kind of stuff, things that would seem sort of tame today, but very, very dangerous back in their time. But yes we do think sometimes the Masons have gotten an unfair, uh, they've gotten short shrift in history. They didn't deserve it. And uh, this is totally something, yeah, 100%. And this is something that plays a role still in the revolution. So we're going to tell you about some of the, um, we're a family show, but this is the only, the only word for it. Some of the badass stuff that Warren did, and then we're going to get to the part you were talking about, Noel, where we ask ourselves how come so many people don't know about this guy? He was a leader in the revolution for a while because Sam Adams yeah. went to Philly in 1774 where he invented cream cheese and the cheesesteak. Don't fact check us. Uh, and <laughs> Joseph If War- you do, though, you will find that it's completely accurate. 100%. 112% true. So Warren kind of took over and kept the seat warm for Samuel Adams in Boston. And then he started doing the stuff that Britain would consider not just sedition, but active terrorism, getting militias together, figuring out, Mm -hmm. getting into the arms trade, how do we get gunpowder and how do we get firearms? So just a couple of months later, you had Sam
0: Adams, Samuel Adams of, of, uh, of middling beer fame. Uh, I'm sure it was great at the time. But also, you know, Revolutionary uh, War fame. And also John Hancock, um, they had been in Philly, like you were saying, uh, and they both came back to Massachusetts um, to further the cause, only to find out that uh, they were officially persona non grata. Mm-hmm. They had bounties placed on their heads. They were outlaws. The crown wanted them dead or alive.
1: That's right. Yeah. Here's another thing you should know about Dr. Joseph Warren. He's the guy who sent Paul Revere on that famous ride in the middle of the night. He learned that British troops were going to cross the Charles River, part of their march toward Lexington. And he said, okay, well, the main reason they're going is to to arrest old Johnny H. and uh, Samuel Adams. And Then they were going to go to Concord to get a hold of the revolutionaries' munitions, like all their firearms and powder and whatnot. So he said, look, I'm going to send, here it is, one messenger by land and one by sea. And then it's around 9 p.m., he goes to William Dawes and he says, look, This is some Mission Impossible stuff. And Dawes says, what's Mission Impossible? And he says, it's a film franchise It's going to blow up later. And he goes, what's film? And he goes, look, we don't have time. You need to ride through this checkpoint that British sentries are guarding. You got to take the land route. And then he goes to Paul Revere, and he says, we don't have time to talk about the Mission Impossible franchise. I need you to go across the Charles River and spread the word that the British are coming.
0: Yeah, but just rest assured that it's going to be uh, an incredible franchise. It's going to be a hit. Uh,
1: beloved by by parents and children
0: alike. <laughs> um, you know, Tom Cruise literally sustains the rest of his career. I don't know, I'm excited about that new Top Gun movie. I don't know about you guys, but it's supposed to be a real riotous uh,
1: b- I'm okay a popcorn with it. jamboree. I'm just not a Top Gun guy, man. I think it was the hype. I'm not really either. I it was the hype. I don't know. Planes are cool. I like uh, planes.
0: You like fighter planes? Yeah, I mean, it's like a it's like a fighter plane soap opera kind of. You know, there's romance in the skies. John Hams in it. They all have cool nicknames like Sparky and Chip. You know, we can give I mean, ourselves cool nicknames. We we
1: do do half that. my pretty friends are cool. <laughs> we do actually. That's true. Uh, true. But yes, Mission Impossible and, and uh, me being unfair to Top Gun aside, this is a very important story. It's just that's surprising, isn't it? That Paul Revere is famous in U.S. history. School kids learn about that, the midnight ride of Paul Revere and so on, but they don't learn about the guy who made the ride happen. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where
0: America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring.
1: With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag-A-Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position: warehouse worker,
0: retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer.
1: Yes, yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that.
2: perfect home sweet home
0: well we're gonna kind of find out why and it's a little bit sad you can yeah. probably put do the do the do the history math and figure out what happens to a degree but let's not spoil it quite yet so next we've got these, like, skirmishes that are happening at Lexington and Concord. And that actually was a bad enough situation that Warren actually left his patients. Um, you know, he he put his assistant in charge, a guy named William Eustace, who I've also heard of. I don't even know anything about the guy, but I know the name William Eustace. I swear to God I do. <laughs> uh, but he rides as well. Not Eustace, but, but, but Warren himself rides to the battle and spends the next six weeks literally – Acting as a commander. You know, like a de facto commander, you know, helping the troops prepare and train and, and, and you know, garrisoning or any of those military terms that I only vaguely understand the meaning of. He was, in fact, then officially, again, this is like a sub kind of government that's being established on the fly, you know, uh, and they elected him the general in command of the Massachusetts forces. Uh, and this was by something called the Provincial Congress on the 14th of June. In 1775, we're only one year away from the big number, right? right, 1776, the one everybody knows. So he meets with something called the Committee of Safety, which sounds like really like a, like, like a hall monitor kind of of like the American <laughs> Revolution. That's a General Artemis Ward's HQ over in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Warren then finds out that British forces have actually landed at Charlestown. And at uh, 12 noon, he rides over to the uh, Breed's Hill Fortifications. This is where a bunch of other American forces were kind of garrisoned there. And uh, then the rest of it, nps.gov, by the way, um, does a fabulous rundown of the more – Legendary kind of parts of the story. That's National Park Service, by the way, uh, and they have like a really good um, historical kind of brief uh, with some kind of quick facts and and important dates and stuff all about Joseph Warren. So if you want to read that, highly recommend checking that out. But yeah, they point out that the next part of the story
1: really is kind of like you know legendary. Shit. Very much eat your heart out, Tom Cruise. We're going cinematic. So Warren. Like, like a blockbuster Hollywood hero, Warren, when he's at Breed's Hill, is asked to take command. And he says, no, we're all in this together. He goes into the lines of battle as a regular volunteer. The British launch one assault, then a second, then a third. And during their final assault, Warren stands up. To make his grand speech, this is like Aragorn speaking to the armies in the Lord of the Rings. Not this day. We don't know how his speech would have ended, because he was shot directly between the eyes. Pretty much right when he stood up. And the people that he had rallied in those last moments were everyone you could imagine from Massachusetts society. As uh, National Park Service puts it, we're talking merchants, mechanics, laborers, farmers, both free people and enslaved people, indigenous people, and then also NPS notes, quote, this is from their site directly, how ironic that the leader was a slave owner. So big, big speech is happening. This is where we get to the what ifery right, of history. If this guy had survived this, there's a chance he would have become president. Later, You know, but he—that's right. He didn't like, 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 like uh, one, no, he
0: didn't. He got hit square between the eyes. Yeah. By, by a musket ball. Yeah. One of the sources that we were looking at, um, pointed out that, you know, if this guy had survived, he was, had such stature in this movement that like, it would have been like George Washington, who? Or or George Who, I guess they would have said. They wouldn't have said who after Washington. But this guy was like the big this guy was the real deal. And he was he was looked at and it was like absolutely crushing that he was killed. And then it sort of literally kind of rewrote the course of history.
1: That's absolutely right. And you know, ridiculous historians, I think it's fair to say that Noel, Max, and myself are all intensely interested in those those fulcrum points, you know, those hinges upon which the path of history swings. And this is one of those hinges. And here's what we know. After he died, and he died bravely, he was defending his compatriots. After the battle, the British forces start burying bodies. They bury Warren in a shallow grave along with another guy, a farmer, who also died in the firefight. Fast forward 10 months later, British forces evacuate Boston, and the nascent U.S. forces exhume Warren's body from the battlefield. Paul Revere was not a full-time dentist, but he, he he did something you could do back in the 1700s. He dabbled in dentistry like it was his side hobby; it was his side gig, not his main gig. He was able to identify Warren because he had done some dental work for him earlier. So they had to use dental identification to figure out who Warren was. And then he was reburied at the Granary Burying Ground with full Masonic honors because he was like a, a grandmaster, I think, in masonry. But his family moved his body again in the 1800s to a Boston cathedral. And then they moved him again to Forest Hills Cemetery in Jamaica Plain in 1855. And that is where his body remains. So he was heroic, but he died in the midst of the war. He was a hero so at the sad, time, me. at least, right? Oh, he was totally a hero. But I mean, you know, like like you said, the British
0: kind of just, you know, chucked him in a shallow grave. And uh, I think, you know, we were talking earlier about what was it that led to his legacy just kind of being cut short or or to, to be relocated to kind of the scrap heap of history. And I think it was just because of the... He didn't exactly die a hero's death or what you would think of in terms of like the lore of a hero. I mean, he died, but that honestly makes him even more compelling to me. He died the way, you know, not not to sound like uh, Walter and, The Big Lebowski, but he died the way so many young men of his generation died in the muck, in the mire, in the trenches, you know, next to each other. He refused to take command. He would have been more likely to have survived if he had been, like, you know, protected. But instead, he was out there in the fray. And I think that is really the sign of a really powerful uh, personality and someone who really did have, you know, a a real moral center and just wanted to do right by all the people that he, you know, had— under him but he didn't really think of it that way right
1: yeah i absolutely agree no he was in some ways a study of contradictions who isn't a study in contradictions rather but people recognized his contributions and you know what what's that old saying uh you never get the flowers while you can still smell them right In New England right now, every state there has at least one town named after him. He was posthumously a hero, died young. No one knew what what could have happened had that bullet not hit him in the face. He left four children behind. Their mother had also passed away in 1773. It took an order from, get this, Benedict Arnold to help Congress pay for their welfare throughout childhood. That was in 1778. And, Ben, you mentioned an exercise in contradictions
0: or a study in contradictions, and you pointed out off mike something that I just – just because I've been so gushy here, I think we both have to a degree. This is an interesting fellow. Uh, a, a lot of these these dudes were, but most, if not all of them, were participated in slavery, mm-hmm. you know? Um, they were not particularly kind to women, you know, in the way. And I, I know sometimes we get ragged on where it's like, well, it was a different time. You don't have to justify everything, all these people's actions. But we're talking about people that I think are doing great things while also doing terrible things. And it does. it's like, does it negate the good things they've done they were also participating in terrible things because those terrible things were just the norm of the time? I always have a hard time with that. So I don't know. I don't really know the answer, but I think it's important to to bring up.
1: It is. It is. Agree. And you know, it's the ethical and just thing to do. We owe it to history to be honest about that. I would argue, Joseph Warren. We know that he did buy uh, enslaved people, uh, specifically from a guy selling enslaved people. That guy's name was Joshua Green. We also know. Everything you said is true, and I'm with you on that one, man. Joseph Warren's family also left behind a legacy. His younger brother, John Warren, became senior surgeon of the Continental Army, again at age 22. What am I doing with my life? And he organized (laughs) the Boston Medical Society in 1780. He went on to play a big role in founding Harvard Medical School, which is around today, and it's weird because, I don't know, one one thing before we wrap up, we've got to say, we're not just blowing smoke and having pipe dreams about what could have happened to this guy had he not lost his life at such a young age. Even loyalists, people on the other side of the conflict, said the same thing about him. A guy named Peter Oliver, a loyalist, would later go on to say that if Joseph Warren had lived, George Washington would have been little more than an obscurity, which is kind of, I, 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 that's a lot to say. I don't know if we can agree with it because we don't, we don't have multiverse access yet. So we don't know. Not yet. What a war. Still waiting on that update. I am too. I haven't even seen Doctor Strange 2 yet. No, I haven't either, but I really like uh, the
0: films of Sam Raimi, and I mm-hmm. think it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, even though it's getting mixed reviews, but who cares? Uh, yeah, the, he said he, he may have become the, quote, Cromwell of North America. That's this Peter Oliver guy. And, you know, speaking of, like, a mixed legacy or things that were accepted at the time, we we did a whole episode about um, the idea of Resurrection Men, and I believe it was Benjamin Franklin, you know, was discovered with, like, a basement full of cadavers that were— looted from from cemeteries. And that was a thing. That is something that Joseph Warren also did, because at the time there was no other way to study the human anatomy than to do this. And it was not technically legal, but it was also understood to be a thing. There's a book called Bunker Hill, A City, A Siege, A Revolution by Nathaniel Philbrick um, that talks about Warren, some of his early days. Uh, he and his younger brother, John, the, the surgeon, uh, Continental Army uh, surgeon guy, and Harvard Medical School founder were part or likely part of a, a group of Harvard students called the Spunkers, mm-hmm. I'm not sure where that one came from. It meant something different. I think it did. I think it did. Let it get your mind out of the, out of the gutter. They, they would routinely go and rob bodies from graveyards, jails, and poor houses in order to find um, specimens they could use for, for medical training.
1: Yeah, yeah, which was a which is a real thing at the time. It was a little bit of a gray area in the eyes of the law for both Europe and the US. Uh, do check out our episode of Stuff They Don't Want You to Know with one of the most clickbaity titles I ever wrote. Was Benjamin Franklin a serial killer? I'm, I'm looking at Max to see if that still lands. I think we mm-hmm. decided to go with it. But yeah, again, this is something you have to ask yourself about so many figures in history. What would the world have been like? The world today in 2022, if things had gone just a bit different. Also, let's point out, you know, firearms of that time, notoriously unreliable. So there's a good chance that he would have survived if he hadn't been hit by that one ball uh, between the eyes. With this, I think we can't wait to hear your thoughts about other forgotten figures in history that were huge in their day, but maybe now not remembered to the extent that they Perhaps deserve. I also want to thank our uh, our super producer, Mr. Max Williams. Folks, you may be asking. I mean, let's be honest, Noel. Most people tune into the show so they can hear Max rag on us every so often. And uh Max is a very conscientious dude and earlier told us, hey guys, you know why I'm I'm being I'm I'm being a little quiet on mic? I've got this wood chipper, it's driving me crazy. So, how would this episode have gone, Noel, if Max had been able to comment? If only that one errant yardsman did
0: not need to (laughs) chip wood at this exact hour. Or potentially dispose of a body. We don't know.
1: We Um, don't. Wood chippers contain multitudes. (laughs) They do, literally. I think you could maybe tell by the sound. Uh, I feel like legally— It'd be a little
0: squishier. Right. It'd be squishier for sure if there were bodies involved no spoilers uh, check out the movie Fargo to find out for yourself
1: <laughs> I think we can spoil that one but uh, but yes let us let us know your thoughts thanks of course to Alex Williams uh, who composed this banging track thanks to everyone for tuning in as always you're our favorite part of the show Noel man thank you so much this was a fun ride for for both of us I think it makes me want to go to a museum like a good yeah you know like a good regional New England museum.
0: That's a good point. Yeah, I haven't been to one of those in a hot minute. Um, I'm actually going to Philadelphia in a couple of weeks, so maybe uh, I'll be, you know, in the region anyway. So maybe I could find a, an appropriately regional museum. Uh, we'll report back for all you ridiculous historians. Please do. See you next time, folks.